Well, they were brutal, John, brutal to the extent that they were outlawed. Uh, the original six-day races are just what they sound like. You'd start at um, a given moment, and then six days later, and it's a velodrome, and they're going round and around and around. It was one man against one man, and that's how it turned out to be until about 1898 when the uh, New York legislature came in and said, this is too brutal. This is Amy, the Senior Group Fitness Instructor at the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. Are you looking for a spark of inspiration to bring to your next class? Find us at IndoorCycleInstructor.com. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Indoor Cycle Instructor Podcast. If you've been following me and what we've been doing here at IndoorCycleInstructor.com for any length of time, you may have heard me reference or maybe seen a post about how I discovered after the death of my grandfather, a bunch of pictures of some guy from back in the very late 1890s who was racing bicycles. And a little research discovered it was my great-grandfather, Ernest McGowan. And as a cyclist, I was, you know, very excited about that. Unfortunately, there wasn't anybody who could give me any more information about it. So it was frustrating. Fast forward a few years and a a friend of mine that I've known for a long time came to me with a manuscript of a book he was writing about a guy called Marshall Major Taylor. And Major Taylor was a black cyclist around the turn of the century that 181900s and uh, he was dominant in the sport and it would you know it was very exciting for me to read this early and read it oh this is wonderful I didn't hear anything for years then all of a sudden I hear just recently that the book's actually been published and the book's author is joining me Terry Kerber uh, to talk about Major Taylor Terry welcome thank you John thanks for having me Marshall Major Taylor, explain briefly, you know, who was he and why should we care? Well, he really had an amazing impact on the sport of cycling. And he came into it when cycling was at its all-time period. Uh, It was an era that is actually a a lost era. Uh, Today, people can't go back and think of what an impact that had it. Uh, at that time, your choices of tra- transportation were either by horse or, if you were lucky enough to own one, a bicycle. And so th- between the years 1870 and 1900, that was the main form of transportation, basically horses. So wheelmen at that time, that's what they were called, were really, there was actually a, a bitter feud between wheelmen and horsemen. In fact, that would have been considered the original seeds, if you will, of what we're calling today road rage. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was, but racing was huge back in that era. And Taylor, I was born in 1878. His career began at the Madison Square Garden in uh, New York, of course, um, on, in November of 1896. And in fact, it was only a week after he turned 18 years old that he beat the reigning American sprint champion, Eddie Bald, at that time in the half mile race. And that really threw a storm into the newspapers in New York because they did not believe that uh, at that point, you know, at that point of our history that, you know, a colored man could could win. And he not only went on to win, but he went on then to um, have an amazing career from 1896 to 1910. 
he was covered by literally hundreds of newspapers all over the world and may have been uh, the highest paid athlete of any sport anywhere in the world. During that period, help everybody understand what kind of racing were they doing at uh, back at the turn of the century? Yeah. Okay. So that was not like the Tour de France and the long tours that we think of today. This was uh, the sport of velodrome bike racing. And some of the velodromes were indoor velodromes, which would typically be 10 laps to a mile. But most of his career was outdoors. And those velodromes were typically one-third to the mile or maybe one-fifth to the mile uh, in Willow Grove uh, Park, which was in Philadelphia at that time in 1897, is where they had the League of Annual Wheelmen uh, Annual Convention. And at that uh, event in 1897, they had about 50,000 people per day attending those races. I mean, these are like these are like a typical football stadium crowd Yeah, for a pro football game. That's right. Uh, and fanatical people and not just fanatical, but it was a, a formal event. If you look back at the old photos, you'll see women that were wearing bloomers or they were wearing long dresses or they had the hats on and, and the men were wearing the bowler hats and suits. And so what it looked like at that time looks very much like watching the Kentucky Derby today. When you see all the formality of that day, as we see it today, it's not much different back then. All right. So in your book is, it's, it's very exhaustive and detailed, taking you right from you know, his childhood and early exposure to um, cycling and you know, working in a bike shop and all those type of things is that. But what, what was it like for him you know, as a black American in a, in a less than hospitable place? It wasn't pretty, John. You know, at that time, segregation in trains, schools, restaurants, and bathrooms, in fact, any public place was the norm. And the same year that he became a pro in 1896, the U.S. Supreme Court codified race segregation with that landmark Plessy versus Ferguson case, which made an already hostile racial environment even worse. In the 1890s, there were more lynchings than any other decade. And when Taylor tried to travel around the United States, at least, uh, it was very difficult for him to get a hotel or a meal in a restaurant. Well, you know, and you describe that in the book, multiple instances. Here's the guy who he's the star. He's the guy that's on all the posters that, that, you know, the race is billed, that Major Taylor is coming. He's the major draw. And at the end of the day, he doesn't have a place to stay. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, it's just it's so it, it it's I don't it's so hard to wrap your 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 mind around. But it just I mean the con- contradiction in, of it all. Uh, he Major Taylor lived his life in two extremes, John. He was treated like that in America, and it was a catch twenty two here because the promoters and track owners knew that the very nature of putting his name on the racing card schedule meant the difference of a crowd of maybe eight to 10,000 versus a crowd of 30,000. And so that's money. And it's, it's one of those things where they're like, you know, what do we do about this? And um, so it was a catch 22. It's a dilemma. And then he would go to Europe and he would go to Australia 
And he was feted and praised in those other countries like no other athlete that came before him. I mean, he stayed in the nicest hotels and ate at the nicest restaurants, and he had cycling manufacturers all over him looking for his endorsements for their uh, tires or their bicycles or whatever it might be. But uh, so there you go. Uh, He would get so accustomed to this adoration in Europe or in Australia. And then just one example, but when he came back from Australia in, in 1904, he came back with the champion of Australia, Don Walker, who had befriended him in Australia. And by the way, when he came back, in 1904, he came back with a baby girl, a one-month-old little girl uh, that they named Sydney because she was born in Sydney, Australia. And a side note, but she lived to be 102 years old. She just died, I think, in 2006. But anyway, they arrived in San Francisco in 1904 and right away uh, could not get a hotel. And they tried several restaurants and they could not uh, get a meal. And Don Walker uh, said to Major Taylor, if this is the America that you've been boasting about in Australia, I really wonder what you were in such a hurry to get home for. Wow. Now, uh, Taylor was the, or I should say major, was, the, uh, I, I think by your account, the first sponsored black athlete. Yeah, and I think that that's accurate. I, I can find, and we did look for other uh, instances where that might have been the, the case, and we didn't find any. So he may have been the first uh, black uh, African-American that got endorsements, and he had endorsements from numerous bicycle manufacturing companies, Ivor Johnson, and some of these others uh, that would um, you know give him huge paydays and bonuses if he could set world rec- speed records with their equipment, and he did exactly that. In fact, um, he made a lot of world records using this other equipment, and it, it, the most important thing for him back in the early part of his career was to win the American Sprint Championships. And that uh, one example in his first year in 1897, uh, he was actually leading in the standings that year, and it came to the circuit moving to the southern states, and that's where they barred him from racing, so effectively, uh, he really lost out that year, and, and came down to the final set of races. And he was a devout Christian who would not race on Sundays. And they normally didn't race on Sundays, but there had been rain the day before, so they postponed it to the next day, which happened to be a Sunday. And here Taylor was basically all he had to do was show up the next day, and uh, he would have won the American Sprint, probably won. Uh, that sprint championship, but he did not show up based on his principles. And the Washington Post ran an article after that that said that that decision on his part may have cost him about $10,000 worth of endorsements. Right. Now, this is in 1904 or thereabouts. Actually, this was about 1897, 98. Okay. But just to put in context, $10,000 then, how does that relate to dollars today? Let's go there. The average American in 1896 was making about $345 a year. A year? A year. Okay. And in 1899, Taylor started receiving offers from Paris, France for $15,000, not for the year, but for three months. And he declined those offers because they required that he would race on Sundays. And the American press couldn't understand this, that here is a guy that can't get the hotel and meal in America, and he's turning down more money in 1899 than Ty Cobb made 
in 1910. Ty Cobb was the first Major League Baseball player that signed a contract for $10,000. And here's Taylor, 11 years before that, turning down a three-month contract for $15,000. A man of principle. Exactly. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it, again, it, it. I don't know that we can even begin to appreciate the, the difficulty emotionally that he went through. You know, not to mention just, you know, staying fit. Um, well, let's talk about fitness. Uh, he, uh, I can't remember, the, you have to help me with the names, but someone was training him that was um, way out in, ahead of their time as far as training in that where it would be, you know, periods of high intensity and then periods of rest. Um that you describe in the book. Who who was that was hel- that was helping him with that? That was um, Mr. Wilder, who was the director of the YMCA in Worcester, Massachusetts. And Taylor gives him a lot of credit. Uh, when Taylor did write an autobiography, and he credits numerous people who helped him achieve his worldwide fame. And that's, John, why we have the subtitle to our book um, in that uh, manner. But the uh, director of the YMCA in Worcester was uh, a very kind man. And I, I say this because Taylor, when he, he grew up in Indianapolis, and he was befriended by a, a very wealthy uh, railroad family, the son of uh, that family, and basically was lived with that family and was provided with food and clothing and a private tutor. But one of the uh, fun things that they would do is go to the local YMCA in Indianapolis, but Daniel, the son of this family, would obviously go into the YMCA, and Major was not allowed to go in. He was African-American. And he even wrote in his autobiography how that broke his heart. And so when he relocated to Worcester, uh, he did that with Bertie Munger. And Bertie Munger was a mentor to him. In fact, the dedication of his autobiography is to uh, William Munger. And... um, in fact, it goes this way. It says, to my true friend and advisor, Louis Munger, whose confidence in me made possible my youthful opportunities for writing, Mr. Munger prophesied that one day he would make me the fastest bicycle rider in the world, and he lived to see his prophecy come true. Well, Munger took him uh, to Worcester, and uh, they did that because Munger had a very successful racing bike company in Indianapolis, but he began taking heat from his partners for partnering up with this young African-American boy that had so much talent. So he, they both took a train and left Indianapolis. And when they arrived in Worcester, the first thing they did was went to the local YMCA. And Major was absolutely tickled that the local uh, person that ran that, Mr. Wilder, uh, allowed him, obviously, to join. But then he set him up with the training regiment. And uh, that's where he followed those principles uh, really religiously. He was a very strict guy when it came to discipline. And he was also fortunate that the world champion at that time, Arthur Zimmerman, was a, a good friend and colleague of Mr. Munger. And Mr. Munger, during dinner one night, when they still lived in Indianapolis, told Arthur Zimmerman, with Major sitting at the dinner table, I am going to make a champion out of this boy someday. And to say that in about 1894, when there are thousands of uh, Americans competing for the top sprint champion, and they're white, uh, and they're very talented, 
to say that, that he could even think that in that environment is pretty much a stretch. But fortunately, Arthur Zimmerman did not have a racial bone in his body, according to Major Taylor. And so he took Taylor under his wing in a way. And, and on many, many cases, he would show up to watch Taylor race and give him points. And and uh, I'm sure that the white riders were probably a bit peeved about it, but um, Zimmerman was just a big man, and he, he didn't um, care if he was out helping another person like that. So it had a huge impact on his life. Major Taylor did a couple of six-day rides, races. And, I, you know, when people hear those, I don't know that they really understand what it means. Describe what those <laughs> events were like and, and how incredibly uh, the, the, the level of endurance required to, to actually com- complete one. Well, they were brutal, John, brutal to the extent that they were outlawed. Uh, the original six-day races are just what they sound like. You'd start at um, a given moment and then six days later, and it's a velodrome. They're going round and around and around. It was one man against one man, and that's how it turned out to be until about 1898 when the uh, New York legislature came in and said, this is too brutal. And people so died. People, people died, died doing that. Right. Yeah, yeah, they <laughs> died. In fact, I'll just tell you something. Um, it, during Taylor's lifetime, 47 professional cyclists were killed on velodrome tracks. And during his career, which was that 14-year period, 1896 to 1910, Taylor himself knew of uh, 14 riders who were killed. Were killed. No helmets. No helmets. Or what they did have may have been a you know a pillbox on their head, but even those uh, were basically only good to soak up the blood that uh, you know they may have spilled on their uh, mm-hmm. on their crashes <laughs> during the process here. Uh, especially on those six-day events, you know, drugs were rampant, is my understanding. Yeah, they were. Um, you know, the drug problem that we think of today uh, was not much different. In fact, it may have been worse in his day. Today it's all illegal, but back then, totally common that anything uh, that was a stimulant, and there were lots of different kinds of stimulants, but they could uh, do what they wanted. And Taylor, though, um, I think uh, – to my knowledge, that first six-day race he did, which was part of his professional inauguration, was the last one that he did. I mean, he he was determined, basically, that his um, career was going to be short-term sprinters, and the short-term sprinters are not ideal for long races like we're talking about here with the six-day races. Right. No, because over six days, what I can't remember, it was like a 1,000 miles they rode. Yeah, I think uh, I'll tell you, by the end of day five on Taylor's journey there, he had gone 1,600 miles. 1,600 Yeah, and he ended up with 1,732 miles. Wow. And he didn't win, though. He was... No, he actually came in sixth place. But this is interesting. It took um, on his first, uh, when he went in the sprint, which was the half mile, it took five laps. And he won $200 for that five laps. For the six-day race, he uh, received $125. So one, John, one takes the half mile, takes five laps, and he makes $200. The other one, by the way, was about 17,000 laps to get $125. 
Amazing. And it's fun it's fun to read in your how you're describing the, how ferocious their appetite is. That, that, that I think you were describing how they they didn't feel like they could eat they ate and ate and ate and were and were never satisfied after uh, that's right. The food intake at a typical six-day race was astonishing. I mean, in that day, they, they had 12 sides of beef, which they carved 500 steaks. They had 400 chickens, 600 pounds of lamb chops, 10 boiled hams, 50 pounds of bacon, 300 dozen eggs, 50 pounds of butter, you know, cereal, oatmeal, dozens of boxes of cornflakes, and, you know, hundreds of pounds of sugar, all of it, tea and other coffee. It was, uh, it was crazy. Oh my gosh! And they would stop and sleep just briefly, and yeah, maybe a few hours, and then uh, they would literally shake them awake and say, "Get back on the bike." So, at the end of the day, what was your intent for writing this book? Well, that's a good question. Um, I saw a quote one time. I think that was did a really good job of defining what got this started here. But it was from the famous African American uh, author and poet Maya Angelou who just died this year, I think it was actually it was the day I gave my first major Taylor presentation. I think it was May 16th she died. But anyway, she had a quote once I thought that was really good, and, and it goes this way. She said, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. And I remember my brother Conrad wrote in a diary way back in 1991 that one of the, his goals in life was to write a meaningful book on a historically significant person that few people are aware of today. That was in 1991, and it was in 2001, 10 years later, that we saw a soundbite on Taylor somewhere when we were doing an internet search. And then I thought we did some more digging on him, and I thought, wow, this is one of those, you know, possibly millions of African Americans whose stories went unheard of or not published. And there was another book on Taylor published in the 1970s, and it was a good one by Arthur Ritchie. Um, But at that time when he did his research, there was no Internet and so on. And so basically uh, he had about 350 sources, which are, you know, very good. And uh, and the book is very well done. But we had the advantage, I think, of the Internet. And so um, we took our good old time on it. And we are very happy to be able to get it's a unique story. And we just were, you know, very happy that we could be the ones to bring it to the table. Wow. Well, congratulations. Now, of course, all of this begs the question, where's the movie? Yeah. And you would think that somebody like this, they would make a movie of this guy with, you know, with cycling, obviously, you know, Lance Armstrong notwithstanding, but the, uh, that this is, sounds like just a, a total, yeah. So where is it? What's, well, what's, that's a good question. Uh, there is a movie. Uh, it's an old movie. And ironically, John, it was made in Shakopee. At the, oh, it, right down the road from us. Right. Yeah, from, from, for your listeners, Shakopee is in Minnesota. It's not too far from the cities. But there used to be a velodrome track down there. And they in 1992, they did a film with Robert Vaughn and I forget the other person. but The anyway, man from UNCLE, Robert Vaughn. That's right. Right, it, okay. And uh, Phil Morris was the actor for Major Taylor. But it was a made-for-TV movie, and it was only covering the two-year period of his life in Australia. And so that's that. But I can tell you that um, there's a trailer that's been on the Internet for years now, maybe 10 years, but uh, it's called Major the Movie. And so there has been 
talk. Well, there's been talk for 30 years about a major motion picture. It just has not happened, and we hope that um, this may be the uh, product, if you will, that gets him back on the radar and the attention then may get uh, to the producers. And we have sent the book to numerous producers uh, in Hollywood and uh, hope that someday we're going to hear back on that one. Well, and just so you know, we have, I have a lot of listeners in California. So if you happen to know somebody in the movie business, this is, make sure to pass this along because I think this would make an awesome movie. And they're just, you know, cycling is such a huge thing now, especially for middle-aged guys like us. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, all right. Awesome. Well, Major Taylor, the inspiring story of black cyclists and the men who helped them achieve worldwide fame. Where do they find your book? Well, they can go on uh, Amazon if they wish. It's there. It's on Barnes & Noble. They can go to our website if they want autographed copies. Um, and our website is www.majortaylor.online.com. All right. Well, Terry Kerber, thank you for this. I, uh, I Again, I'm just totally inspired by the fact that you've made a commitment and then all these years later you followed through with it. And uh, it's in black and white, as they say. So thank yeah. you for joining us. Thank you, John. It's good to be on this side of the book now that it's published and we can get the word out on it. So I appreciate this opportunity and uh, I'd like to see you sometime and get on the tandems. Awesome. I forgot to add that. You, uh, you're a great tandem writer and there was a time when you were lending us your tandem back before we had our own. So yeah. All right. Another conversation, Terry. Thank you. Thank you, John.